0: Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. Now, before we get started with our show today, I just want to let you know that we're almost at the end of our Muscles for Myeloma program, which concludes on April 30th. To date, we'd like to give a shout-out to Dean Preston, who will be winning a prize for completing all the Muscles for Myeloma challenges, and UAMS is the leading facility for this year's program, and we thank you for participating. We hope you've learned more about why fitness is important for myeloma patients. If we're fit, more treatment options will be available to us, giving us longer life and better outcomes. Our show today is primarily for patients with early conditions that may or may not become multiple myeloma. So today we'll be talking about how researchers could potentially find MGUS and smoldering myeloma patients who are likely to progress to myeloma using myeloma genetic testing and other lab or imaging values. There's no doubt that this work will be equally important for myeloma patients as new discoveries are found. Are found. So today, Dr. Elizabeth Menasonk of the MD Anderson Cancer Center joins us to discuss a study of myeloma genetics as well as a clinical trial she's running for high-risk smoldering patients. Welcome, doctor.
2: Hello. How are you doing, Jenny?
0: Doing great. So we're so happy that you joined us. And I was we were talking before the show started that this is our 99th show And I was so hoping it would be our 100th show because we started this series uh, with Dr. Olowski from MD Anderson. And uh, you and your facility uh, have just some tremendous work going on and some of the largest numbers of clinical trials in the nation. So we're excited to have you on today and hear a little bit more.
2: Yes, I'm very excited to be able to talk about this. We've been working on this for the last three years. So we've been really, really working very hard.
0: Yeah. Let me introduce you before we get started. I didn't do that yet, and then we'll go right to our questions, and you can explain uh, what it is for these two studies, because they're fascinating. Dr. Monasank is an assistant professor of the Department of Lymphoma and Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She graduated with an MD degree from the University of Barcelona in 2005 and received her MHSC in clinical research from Duke University in 2014. She pursued internal medicine and medical oncology training at the University of Massachusetts and National Institutes of Health and is board-certified in both specialties. During her fellowship training at the NIH, Dr. Manasong fo- focused on the research and treatment of plasma cell dyscrasias. In 2014, she was awarded the MD Anderson Cancer Center Clinical Innovator Award to study predictors of outcome after anti-CD8 antibody therapy in intermediate and high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma. She received the IMF 2015 Brian D. Novus Research Award to implement minimal residual disease testing in multiple myeloma. In 2016, she received the High Impact Clinical Research Support Program Award to support clinical research personnel funding. Currently, she leads the Myeloma Precursor Disease Program at MD Anderson with a focus in understanding early stages through new technology and applying immunotherapy to early treatment. A prospective observational clinical trial at MGUS and smoldering myeloma is currently happening, and she will describe that and many interventional trials with monoclonal antibodies in intermediate and high risk smoldering myeloma are ongoing and she will talk about that as well today. So, before we get started, Dr. Monasant, maybe maybe we can back up because I know that MD Anderson has this Moonshot program. And part of the Moonshot program is for high risk smoldering myeloma patients. So, do you want to describe what that program is, and um, why you decided to include high-risk smoldering myeloma.
2: Well, so it's very interesting that you're mentioning the moonshot that we have here at MD Anderson because actually these two studies that we're going to be talking about, they are actually part of what we call the Flagship one program of the moonshot. So part of this research that we're doing in MGAS and also in high-risk smoldering myeloma is funded through the MD Anderson Moonshot Program. And so the reason we wanted to do high-risk smoldering multiple myeloma and include these in our moonshots for high-risk myeloma is that these patients that have high-risk smoldering myeloma, they usually the perceived risk is about 75% risk of progression. And depending on the series, it's 75% risk at two or five years following the diagnosis of smoldering myeloma. So these patients really have a substantial risk of morbidity and mortality within just a few years of diagnosis, and we felt that we really should be doing therapies, especially now that we have so many new therapies with uh, all the new antibodies, um, to target Mm -hmm. these patients to try to see if we could allow them not to have this progression to symptomatic myeloma uh, or if we could you know, cure them if there is less um, genetic abnormalities uh, beforehand. And right now we're in the very early stages of this where we're doing single-agent antibody treatment. However, in the future we could do combinations with this, and that's where uh, things are probably going to get a little bit more interesting.
0: Yeah, because then you have to decide, and this is where your study comes in, who, who is likely to progress and who isn't? So, you know, when you add combination therapies, then you're start, starting to talk about more toxicities and things like that. So who is it worthwhile for and who won't benefit?
2: Well, so this is what we're trying to, to look into for our study, for the first prospective observational study that includes 100 patients with monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance, and about 100 patients with smoldering multiple myeloma. And this is any risk, MGUS, and any risk smoldering myeloma patients. And we have uh, currently accrued about 25% of the patients in about one year. So we have a very good accrual rate. And with the features that we're looking for for these patients to see if they're going to progress or not is, of course, we look at the immunoglobulin levels, we look at the level of the monoclonal protein, we look at the level of the light chains in the blood and the light chain ratio and mostly the involved divided by the uninvolved ratio. So if the patient has an immunoglobulin G kappa that the smoldering myeloma or the gas is making, then we would look at the kappa divided by the lambda. And if they had a lambda, we would look at the lambda divided uh, by the kappa. And these are all the regular tests that doctors do. Uh, all the time. So there are some features that we look at uh, to predict progression. However, these features, they vary so depending on who you talk to. So there are different, um, different risk models, and depending who you ask, depending on the country where they do the studies, depending on the institution where the studies are done. And so this study with the 200 patients, what we're going to try to do is to study in more in-depth the immune system for once and then also the genetics. Uh, and we have a lot of correlative studies, not just looking at uh, sequencing of uh, DNA, but we're also doing RNA sequencing like gene expression. And we're looking at a lot of these things not only of the myeloma cells, but also of the cells that are around the myeloma cells, um, as well as the immune cells, both in the blood and the bone marrow. So I think that Hopefully, what the study that we're doing, what is going to allow us to do is to have one model that is more accurate than what we have right now. so when patients come to the clinic, we can predict in a more accurate way, and that this model can be replicated in other centers. That would be the ideal uh, information that we would derive from this, and again, we are accruing quite quickly so I think we can probably have some preliminary results for this within the next year, year and a half. And we're going to be presenting this. we present some data probably later at ASH this year uh, with all the clinical data that we have for the patients we have. And then we're probably going to try to present also some of the correlative data uh, probably
0: next year. Mm-hmm. So this is fascinating because you're studying you know, the the markers that you get back, your M protein and the light chains, and those are just standard right. blood blood and bone marrow tests. And then you said you're also studying some genetics testing, so I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions about that. But you're also studying the immune system. So how do you go about studying the immune system? Because, you know, people say that, well, everyone may be um, exposed to cancerous cells, and then our immune system just kind of tackles it down, and we never develop cancer. But obviously in myeloma, the immune system is too weak to kill all the myeloma cells by itself, and so it kind of gets out of control. So how do you better study the immune system?
2: So what we're doing with this studies is uh, we have very good collaborators. One of them is Dr. Sadva Nilapu, who is an immunologist, and he has his own laboratory here at MD Anderson. And what we do is... We have him analyze samples of peripheral blood, so before and after treatment in the case when the patients have high risk smoldering myeloma and the treatment on studies, or in the other patients and the ones that are in the observational study at, at certain time points, which is usually about every six months. And what he does is he sorts the cells from the blood and takes out all the white cells and analyzes them and looks at markers that are in these cells. So there are many, many different types of white cells, and he looks at all these different types, and then he looks at markers on the uh, cell surface of these cells through a technique called flow cytometry and looks to see if there are inhibitory or activation markers that could help us understand uh, why some people progress. So, for example, if you have um, some inhibitory markers in your myeloma cells, let's say, in the blood, because we do have patients who have uh, um, precursor disease. If you do flow cytometry, which is a very good technique to sort cells in, you know, in fluid, um, you usually will find these abnormal cells in the blood. So you can study these cells, and let's say these cells have these inhibitory markers, so when the immune system cell, another immune system cell, let's say a T cell or an NK cell, these are different types of cells that can, uh, that can recognize this abnormal plasma cell or myeloma cell and kill it. When they kind of attach to it, then the myeloma cell has this inhibitory marker and doesn't allow this other immune cell to kill it. So if you have a lot of inhibitory markers in the, in the myeloma cell, then that's a sign that maybe you could progress because your immune system is not ready to fight it. So one treatment for that, if we, it turns out that patients that progress do have things like this, would be to create an antibody that is going to actually uh, uh, bind to this inhibit- inhibitory marker on the myeloma cell and is not going to allow uh, this cell to have this as protection, and then the immune system will attack it. And this is one of the things, the way that you can study There are other ways that you can study the immune system. So flow cytometry is one, and you can do this in the blood and in the bone marrow. And then you can do something called nanostring, which is what we are going to be doing uh, in these studies as well, which is going to be looking at uh, gene expression, uh, gene expression of uh, different genes that are involved in the immune system. And you can also look at that. Usually it's mostly in the bone marrow. That's another way that you can do it. You can also do stain. So you have a bone marrow And this is something that we're looking at for our smoldering patients is looking at um, once uh, we take a core biopsy, then looking at this core biopsy and doing stains. There are uh, many new technologies right now where you can actually take a core biopsy and the same slide, and you can stain it with an immune marker, so let's say a molecule, like, for example, you know, we could stain it with CD38 because we know there are antibodies against it, or we, you could stain it with PD-1 or PDL one which are markers on the immune cells on the at the, um, at the myeloma cell. And you could stay, do one stain and then you can delete it. Uh, you know, they have a way to delete that stain, and then on the same surface, on the same slide, do another stain. And then you can look at the architecture of the immune system in the bone marrow, and this is something that uh, has not been done before, to my knowledge, and this is something that we're looking at. So there are many, many ways that we can look at the immune system to find this out, and I do think that we will know a lot more in the next probably couple of years of uh, if there are any of these markers that are important in the progression. I think that we have probably the means to find them. So it's very mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, I'm, yeah, I can't wait to have uh, some of these results.
0: Yeah, it's so exciting. So you, earlier you talked about um, the, you know, the typical markers that myeloma markers that we get, and this is that now you just talked about setting the immune system. You also talked about the bone marrow microenvironment. Are these inhibitors that you're talking about what you're looking for in the bone marrow microenvironment, or are there other features that you're also looking at for that environment?
2: Well, so. The other immune cells, they are part of the microenvironment. So uh, the T cells, Mm -hmm. the NCAN cells, uh, macrophages, so all those cells are part of the immune system and are part of the microenvironment. So right now what we're going to be looking at are these markers in these cells, uh, mostly in the immune cells, and then markers in the myeloma cells. But we also have, for example, when a patient comes in and they decide to participate in one of these studies, uh, the sample of bone marrow that we take that is, in this case, an aspirate, so it's the liquid part of the bone marrow, uh, we separate this into the microenvironment part and the tumor part. And so we have mm-hmm. both, uh, both samples stored. And uh, you can do the same taste for both parts. You can find the myeloma cells and the my- environmental cells. But, again, for the microenvironment, where we're looking at the most right now is the immune system in that microenvironment because it has not been described a lot, especially in smoldering myeloma and and MGAS.
0: Right. So that's like our focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's terrific. And then when you talk about the genetics, it it sounded like some of this is the nanostring, nanostring, sorry, is the gene expression profiling. So is that part of the microenvironment, or are you doing that on the actual myeloma cells? Like you just said, you can so, do it on both so the tumor you know, part and the yeah. So you can. So uh, we can probably do it in both
2: because we have both samples. So we do mm-hmm. uh, from the get-go. We do gene expression, um, as you know. Well, the first study that we have, we're collaborating with Signal Genetics or now Quest, and um, I know there's a question about whether this is the same as a GEP70, and it is. It's that it's that same test. So all the patients have that test done, and that what it analyzes is the gene expression of the tumor cells. The GEP70 looks at the tumor cells, but we also have microenvironment cells. So we can actually perform a different test, which is a nanostring, but it's also it's, a, it's similar to the gene expression, and we can look at that in the environmental cells. And also... You can do RNA sequencing, which is also looking at the expression of the genes. And we also are doing that in the environment, uh, of, in the microenvironment cells, so the ones that are not the tumor cells, and also, of course, in the tumor cells. So we are doing all this. We can do it in both parts. Uh, but the GP70 mm-hmm. uh, that now Quest has, um, that one, uh, those results, they only look at the tumor cells. But you could right. have, you know, a, a signature from the environment. So you could have, like, for example, an immune signature. And, again, uh, Dr. Davies and Dr. Nilapu here have actually worked on this for lymphoma, where they do have uh, they do immune signatures. You can see, depending on how the immune system looks, your response to immune therapies. So
0: wow, that's so fascinating. That's where
2: we're going. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, it's really amazing. I have to say it's You know, science right now, and and we have so many technologies right now to do all these things. So it's really, I mean, it's really, really exciting.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And the RNA sequencing, how does that differ from that um, gene expression profile or that GEP70 test? What are you looking at that's different from that test?
2: So uh, theoretically, with uh, with doing RNA uh, sequencing, so as you know, uh, you know we all have DNA, and then the DNA is sort of stored inside the cell, and it's um, we're really not uh, using it that much. It's just when we need uh, some expression of some proteins, uh, then there's a whole machinery in the cell that goes into the nucleus and takes out this DNA. But the way this DNA information gets to the rest of the cell is through RNA and then translation into protein. So when you're looking at the RNA, RNA level, you're looking at what is being expressed in the cell, not necessarily abnormalities in the sequencing, but what is being expressed at a later level. So it's a little bit later on in the transcriptional level. And I think the main difference with uh, the gene expression that we have right now is they both look at RNA, but I think that with RNA sequencing, maybe it is a little bit more uh, accurate because you, can, you actually do uh, all the sequencing, which in uh, gene expression doing with through a machine, you don't necessarily do that. So it's good to have both. It's possible that results are going to be similar,
0: mm-hmm. but it's good to have
2: both so you can compare.
0: Right. No, I, I mean, all three of those are three totally separate ways of testing to Correct. get a whole complete picture of a patient. That's really amazing, or well, actually four ways if you include the blood. So how about imaging yeah, tests no, as good. well?
2: So imaging tests, uh, so as you know, I think that the best uh, the best test that we have for myeloma, I don't know if you will agree with me, as you, I know you're very experienced, So, but the best test that we have to look at imaging of myeloma uh, the, pet, the whole body PET CT is one, which is excellent, and also it can give you information on how active some of the lesions are, and that's very useful. Visually, it's very easy to see. And then you can follow that w- with time, right? And then another one, which is not available everywhere, is a whole body MRI, which allows you to see uh, different infiltrate in the bone marrow, depending on how many, you know, you have a lot of infiltrate, it looks in a different way than if you don't, if you have a lot of myeloma. So those are both very good tests. So ideally for these studies, a patient should have at least a recent PET-CT uh, or whole body MRI to make sure you don't have any of those lesions and you truly can go on one of these smoldering studies either for treatment or for follow-up. So in our studies, what we do is we usually recommend that a patient has a PET-CT whole body because that's our test uh, that we have here as standard uh, at least a month before they enroll in the study. Some of the patients, you know, they had a PET CT three months before, and the insurance they don't cover this. If you sometimes they don't want to cover it at all, which I think is a problem right. uh, in our field. But when do they do cover it? They don't want to cover it every couple of months or every three months. So if the patient has had a PET CT two or three months prior we usually just do a skeletal like the x rays. But the best tests, I mean, are the PET CT and the MRI to look at the bone marrow and to look at the at the lesion. So usually patients have to do at least a PET C T
0: Okay, great. So you start with the PET CT and then and then what do you do for the study for the patients? So you for said the you were testing them about every test six months? Yeah. For so. this
2: prospective study, so these patients uh Usually what we do is when the, pa- the patients enter the study, when there's usually a need for an evaluation, so if we think that uh, the patient, um, you know, there's been a long time, they haven't done any testing, then we usually uh, order a bone marrow to look at the infiltration of the core biopsy. As you know, they changed uh, the criteria for myeloma. Now if you have 60% or more plasma cells, you have myeloma that needs treatment. So it's important, I think, every now and then to follow a bone marrow in patients with smoldering myeloma to see if they're meeting these criteria. So they do a, mm-hmm. a bone marrow biopsy, we do some imaging, we do blood work, and a 24-hour urine, and then if those results show that there is no active myeloma, then they can participate in the studies. If they have very high risk of smoldering myeloma, they can do a treatment study, and if not, we offer to do uh, this observational study. In the observational study, uh, we follow for every six months, for three years. As you know, some smaller patients, you need to follow them every three months. But we don't take Mm -hmm. research samples every three months. We only take research samples, which is only blood at that time, uh, once every six months. And we take a research sample of bone marrow whenever they start the study. Uh, And then after three years, we usually repeat the testing to make sure there's no progression, and we take another sample of bone marrow uh, and we take another sample of blood, and then after three years, the study finishes. However, I have to say that many of the patients that we have on these studies—they're our patients in the clinic—so they're not going to stop seeing us because, as you know, the risk of progression if you have anger or smoldering is something that kind of lives with you. So it's something you have to follow for life. So these patients, we will probably have long-term data for these patients and. Probably when the study finishes, we will allow to have a follow-up cohort of patients that we can call and ask how they're doing, or if they come to our clinic, then uh, we'll follow them and, you know, we'll follow to see if they progress or not. And so it's going to be very interesting to see this data, you know, five years from now, five years of follow-up, ten years of follow-up, and so on.
0: Absolutely. That will be really valuable. And your overarching goal is what you said at the beginning of the show which I kind of want to stress. It's to see can you treat patients at an earlier stage and avoid, you know, heavy treatment in the future and could you cure it early? Is that really what you're going after? Yes, we are and of course, you know, you always
2: have to start to start slow. So you cannot start usually, you know, you don't start a study with new medications, uh, some of them not even approved in, in multiple myeloma. Uh, with doing combination. So right now we really are trying to focus on immunotherapy. We're trying to build immunotherapy treatments for this population which is a little bit earlier than myeloma. Why? Because it has many advantages. I mean, if you think about it, you know, an immunotherapist can be toxic. I mean, I'm not saying that they don't have any side effects. They can have side effects. But if you compare mm-hmm. it with the, the, the treatment with, you know, the dexamethasone, right, and and doing oh, like a <laughs> right, or doing like yeah. a bortezomib, or doing a transplant. So all those treatments, they they seem sort of a little bit aggressive, right? And uh, yeah. and how do you decide we do that? So we're trying to do something that seems a little bit less aggressive, but that could be very effective. And so these are what we're trying to do is build in, an immunotherapy treatment for uh, early precursor disease in in multiple myeloma. And so we're starting by testing out single antibodies, so one antibody at a time. And we're looking at these results. And if these results look promising, then we can combine this with other medications. And, you know, some of the advantages, I mean, uh, there are, as you know, there are studies uh, where we do lenalidomide for smoldering myeloma. There's a phase 3 study ongoing right now, and there are many other studies with antibodies and with lenalidomide and, and other medications. And, but some of these medications, you know, sometimes they say they can damage the stem cells. So if, you know, you may, you maybe want uh, to do a transplant, then you have to collect stem cells, right? So with right. immunotherapy, you probably don't have to do that. There's really no evidence that these antibodies damage the stem cells. So that's one of the advantages. And the other advantage is that the immune system might be a little bit better early on than when you present for the first time and you're hypercalcemic and have tons of lytic lesions. And you know you need to go into the hospital for treatment. So, so it has potentially many advantages. So I do think it's still very early on, but I think that there's a lot of future in this field of immunotherapy in early myeloma. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's also a lot of potential for relapsed myeloma and for early myeloma. I mean, there's a study, there's a studies right now with antibodies frontline. Adding antibodies to. Uh, the standard treatment for neurodiagnosed myeloma and there's many studies with antibodies in relapsed myeloma so, but I, I think that particularly in this area that is early on it's, it's very interesting and it's. Um, I think it's very promising and not everybody is doing this right now so we are one of the centers that is mostly exclusively doing doing this mm-hmm. that is trying to build an immunotherapy platform in, in a precursor disease
0: mm-hmm. I think all the patients really appreciate what you're doing so let's talk about how to join the study, because obviously, if you're an MD Anderson MGAS or smoldering myeloma patient, this is just an observational study. So since you're not doing any treatment and it's observational, to me, these are the kind of studies that are just no-brainer studies, because you're there anyway, and you know you might be taking a few more samples, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you're learning so much about what can happen. But can patients that are not MD Anderson patients, typically come and see you if they're in your kind of your geographic area. They could come and, you know, get your sample every six months, and that's not a huge deal.
2: Right. So a lot of the patients decide to do that. As you know, we're a big center. We have a lot of patients coming to us from other states. Uh, we have a lot of patients coming from Florida, uh, coming from all the partnering states, from Texas um and so and so a lot of patients uh, i mean most of the patients they don 't mind now, if there's a patient that would like to participate in the study and is in another state, then they would have to come here. Unfortunately, this study is an investigator initiated study that we 're only really doing here because the way we sort the cells and we analyze the samples, we really have all the labs here, so it will be difficult to have somebody ship the samples, they have to be collected in a certain way, et cetera. So well, unfortunately, they're only available here. And so they would really have to come here and be here every six months uh, for three years. So that's the, the only downside is, you know, if you're in New York, you cannot do it in New York. So, mm-hmm. uh, however, uh, the smoldering treatment study is a multi institutional study, multi-center study, and we are the leader of MD Anderson. However, we are working with Dr. Ola Langren at Lone Kettering and also Dr. Sander Jagannath at Mount Sinai. So we are now working on getting this study that is with an antibody in smoldering myeloma open in New York. So the New York patients
0: mm-hmm.
2: will be able to do this study in New York. But the right. observational of- is only here. Yeah,
0: okay. That makes sense. Let me ask you a few more questions about the observational study before we move on, because I want to make sure we have enough time to cover that study, the, the second study. Are there any clues that you've learned so far about MGAS and smoldering myeloma or some hypotheses that you're going into this observational study with? Um, just things you, you kind of want to dive into a little more, I guess? Or you're so, just starting yeah. from scratch and you kind of want to just... Get a picture of everything.
2: So, so uh, together with, uh, with Dr. Nilapu here, what we did is we have not yet looked at the samples coming from the prospective study, which are kind of precious samples, so we have not looked at some of those results. And again, most of these um, studies, both the genomic staff and the immune, immune staff, their samples are stored, and we are going to test for this in the next few months. But what we did is we took some, we have a myeloma tissue bank here, and so uh, we took some samples from smoldering patients that had progressed and compared them to smoldering patients that had not progressed from stored samples in our tissue bank. And uh, what we saw is that there were some of these molecules that were activating or inhibitory markers that were uh, had abnormal levels compared to normal controls. So we think that there, there's going to be something there, and we have to really validate this and in our perspective series. But uh, really, that's what we're looking at right now. I also think that uh, the genes are going to play a key part in this. I do think that, and we know this for a while, this is why I'm in the staging system in multiple myeloma has the genetics as part of the staging system. If you have something that is perceived as bad genetics, then you're stage three, right? That's the new staging system for myeloma. So there mm-hmm. are also, there are going to play a key part in precursor disease. The biology of the MGUS or the smoldering myeloma that you have is going to play a key part. And so how does that play together So this to, with the immune system? So if you have a very bad type of smoldering myeloma or MGUS, uh, if you have a very Strong immune system then how does what how what what happens, or if you have that and you have a weak system, what happens so that has not really been studied a lot, so I think that a lot of these things that we're looking at are very new, but I think that mm-hmm. we will um, we will also probably uh, corroborate and validate many of the things that have already been said, such as that you know having suppressed immunoglobulins is probably not a good thing. If you're looking at progression to myeloma, having abnormalities of chromosome 1, which has been seen in many studies to be a sign of progression to myeloma and also to be for higher risk for myeloma is also probably not going to be a good thing. Um, Having um, high expression of the genes that are associated with bad myeloma when you're diagnosed with active myeloma or having uh, um, high levels of this expression of these genes that are Uh, you know, that gives kind of immortality to the cells that have been already identified, for example, by the Arkansas group. I think we're going to see a lot of these things that are going to be true also in our patients. But we're hoping to look at this from the point of view also of the immune system.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that adds a really fascinating um, perspective to it, I think. I think it's really amazing, and I love that you're doing that. So one more question, I guess. But what, what's your opinion about larger MGUS screening? Let's say you do start um, learning a lot more about who will progress and who won't and at different stages, and you can kind of predict. I guess that takes some of the fear out of screening everyone for MGUS and, and then um, having people not know where they stand.
2: Well, so, uh, so I think that it's a very good idea to screen, to do a study, for, to screen for MGUS. And the reason for this is that most people don't know, right? They, most people, uh, they have myeloma. They, I mean, not everybody goes to the primary care doctor once a year. That's true. Right. Uh, yeah. And if they do, uh, you know, not all, not all the myelomas have high protein in the blood. That's a typical thing. You go to your primary care doctor and they see a high total protein, and then they send you to an oncologist, and then they find out you have a protein, you have a bad protein in the blood, and then they do the workup on its myeloma. So, but um, the pro- the myelomas that have light chain myeloma, which is 15 or 20 percent of all the myelomas, they don't necessarily are associated with a high total protein in the blood. So those are not going to, the primary care doctor is not going to say, you have to do the light chain test in the blood, and they don't do that. So, hmm. first of all, uh, great idea, the study that Dr. Sigurdur Christensen is doing in Iceland, I think it's a fantastic idea. My full support It's a very ambitious program, but the, I, I I heard that they're accruing very well. So it can answer many potential questions. The main question is, do we have to screen everybody for MGAS? Um, I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, why? Because I don't know what the study is going to show. I do know, however, that many studies, uh, mostly retrospective studies, looking at patients that had a prior diagnosis of MGAS or not, patients with active myeloma with a prior diagnosis of MGAS or not. Those that had the prior diagnosis of MGAS and were followed had a better overall survival in a few studies. So it's not just one study. So it seems that knowing that you have something that could develop into myeloma and being followed for it might make a difference. It could also be the biology. So if you have MGAS for 20 years and then develop myeloma, chances are your myeloma is better at risk than somebody who nobody sees anything, and then all of a sudden you have a horrendous myeloma. So the biology of the myeloma is different. But I think that, you know, I think that it's a great idea to do the study. Now we have to see the results, and I think that at the rate they're accruing patients and how they're doing everything in Iceland, we we'll probably know in the next few years.
3: And Mm -hmm. what I
2: think, uh, you know, what they're doing is they're doing these three arms in the study and there are some patients, they don't do anything right, they don't tell them they have MGAS because that's the the standard, people wouldn't even check. Then another arm, they uh, follow them in the clinic but they don't do a bone marrow or imaging or anything and then they have another arm where they do the bone marrow and the imaging and they try to stage them a little bit more and take samples uh, to do sequencing of the DNA, of germline DNA, to see if there's any association, genetic association with like the germline DNA, not the myeloma DNA, for progression and uh, for risk of myeloma. And so I really think we have to wait for that study to see. I think that it would be helpful if somebody else could do a similar study, maybe not similar because it's very difficult to do this very large studies, like hundreds of thousands of patients. Um, but something, you know, in this regard to see, to compare, and to validate the results that, that they're going to show. But I think it's a fantastic idea. So uh, we really need to do this, you know, the, to have mm-hmm. a screening study to know what what to do because, I mean, if we have some studies showing that if you know before you do better, then why not, right? So that's the basis. Right,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this might be an odd question, uh, or maybe even a dumb question, but are minimal residual disease testing tests ever used in MGAS?
2: So, so you could use it, right? So, for example, how could you use it? I mean, you could use it in, in mostly in research. But when I was a fellow at the National Institute of Health, and we were studying also, you know, MGAS and smoldering and all this, uh, the flow cytometries that do. Uh, you know MRD because MRD I'm assuming you're you're doing uh, MRD by flow cytometry right not sequencing or yeah well
0: i, I yeah, guess the or question or both is either or one. both uh-huh. so
2: so for for sequencing i i don't think so because you're not treating it right But right. um you're not treating uh, and for flow it depends right so they say that that minimal residual disease so you are minimal residual disease negative after treatment for active myeloma if you analyze 2 million cells in a bone marrow aspirate and you have like less than 10, uh, less than 10, or 10 to 20 cells that are abnormal. That's considered negative. So mm-hmm. if you take an MGAS patient and you analyze 2 million cells and they have 15 that are abnormal of the 2 million, you
4: mm-hmm. could.
2: That it's the same test. You wouldn't call it minimal residual disease because you're not treating the patient. So it's not minimal residual disease positive after treatment. And if you look at MGAS patients, um, in fact, MGAS patients usually will have a little bit more than minimal residual disease. So if you took the same test and you analyze, you know, two or three million cells, which is a lot by flow cytometry, you know, in a, in a diagnosed patient with myeloma, they may, sometimes they test 200,000 or 500,000 cells, and almost all of them are multiple myeloma. Many of them are multiple myeloma because they have so many in the bone marrow. But if you take somebody with mgas and you do flow cytometry, you can you pick up those those abnormal cells. There's going to be less than an mm-hmm. patient, but I think that it's possible that it's a little bit more than if you after treatment for myeloma. But you wouldn't call it MRD. You would say. You know, we've looked at we've done uh, sequencing. You know, uh, you can sequence that VDJ uh, segment so the immune uh, immunoglobulo-, immunoglobulin part of the M protein, and then you can you you can say this is what we are detecting. You know, right. at uh, diagnosis, yeah. and this is the level, and this is the level that you have. I mean, and and you can follow this. So, for example, one of I'm. I, I think that if you followed, if you took, uh, if you did this sequencing of this segment of immunoglobulin, and you did this every year, for example, and a patient was progressing, you would see the levels of this go up. So you would see right. uh, more segments of DNA having this. And if you do flow cytometry, and this is actually one of the risk factors by some of the disease for progression, is if you if most of the plasma cells that you have in the marrow are abnormal they're not good plasma cells, then that's a, a criteria for progression. So you could probably correlate this. And some people are looking at doing the liquid biopsies, which is taking peripheral blood, taking blood, and looking at the myeloma cells in the blood and looking at the DNA in the cells in the blood from the myeloma and then saying what is your risk of progression. So that's something that uh, it needs to be looked at for risk of progression. So, I mean, there's, but, yeah, but you wouldn't say MRD. You would say it's flow or you do sequence.
0: you call things. something else, and you yeah. Could,
2: yeah, uh-huh. yeah and, and it's possible that you could do a study where you could analyze this, and then depending on the level, you could say maybe your risk is this of progression or is this other risk. And that might, maybe there would
0: be a correlation, you know? Yeah, I'm just wondering if those more sensitive tests would give you any more information. That's all.
2: So, yeah. So so it gives more information. I mean, uh, I don't think that. I mean, what people look at is how many in with by flow cytometry with MRD. It's called MRD if you analyze a certain number of cells. If you analyze less cells, it's not called MRD. So so it's mm-hmm. like a,
0: you know a, the same technique. Yeah. Well, let's make sure that we talk about your um, your trial with this monoclonal antibody, isotuximab. Why don't you just describe um, what it is and how that drug works?
2: Yeah, so isotuximab is a monoclonal antibody. It's humanized, which means that the portions of the uh, antibody uh, have uh, sequences that are human uh, because many of the original antibodies uh, were mouse or mice, mouse antibodies. And so it has many uh, modes of actions uh, to kill uh, tumor cells most, uh, mostly through di- direct tumor targeting and also immune cell engagement. Uh, the way this uh, drug works so it's a tuximab, which is a CD38 antibody mostly, it works through, through something uh, that is called antibody uh, dependent uh, cytotoxicity, antibody dependent cell mediated cytotoxicity. And with that, does this, if you have a myeloma cell, uh, and myeloma cells almost universally express, uh, CD38. It's a marker of, of the plasma cells. And what happens when you, when you do this is you have this, this, I guess this protein, this CD38, sitting on the surface of the myeloma cell. and then it's a It's an antibody that attaches to this protein. And what this antibody does is it sends a signal to the other cells in the immune system and says, hey, there is something here that is not right. It sends like a signal to the immune system. And the immune system, which is usually, and there have been some studies showing that the natural killer cells are the most important cells for this antibody to act. So you can have then a natural killer cell that gets excited to see this antibody, then Uh, then goes and attaches to the myeloma cell and kills the myeloma cell. So it works through activating uh, other parts of the immune system to target this cell that has the CD38. So theoretically, you know, if you have other cells that have the CD38, non-myeloma cells, uh, your immune system could also destroy. But so far, the testing that have been done with this drug show that it actually, uh, it's not very myelosuppressive. So the other cells in the bone marrow most of them, they don't have a lot of CD38, and this drug seems to work if you have a lot of CD38. And so that's like one of the mechanisms of action. It's an antibody. It's a protein. It's not the hardcore chemotherapy that we talk about, for example, for people who have breast cancer. It's not that type of stuff. Uh, It's not high-dose cyclophosphamide. It's it's an antibody. So the main side effects of antibody drugs are infusion reactions because you're Mm -hmm. taking a a protein that is foreign to your body and your immune system can have a reaction to it, like an allergic reaction. Uh, and so uh, there's already an antibody that is approved for multiple myeloma and that we give in multiple myeloma as early as after after one line of therapy and that's betatumumab. And so uh, I think that they're very similar. Um, with us giving map here, we have not seen more infusion reactions. I think that if you give medications which is usually a little bit of steroid, and then some medications to open up the airways, and some like anti-allergy medications. Most people do very well, and they don't get allergic reactions, and the infusion is a few hours. Uh, it can mm-hmm. vary from two to three hours to five, six hours, depending on how quick the infusion is, and that depends on how well the patient is doing. Uh, But I think that it's similar. So I I don't see that there's a lot more infusion reactions with this medication, with this atuximab, than giving daratumumab for myeloma patients.
0: And how the two drugs compare? Because I know when you have the same type of drug in the same drug class, like even, let's say, a proteasome inhibitor or something, those drugs can be radically different in the way that they work. Are these more similar in the way that they work? And they're just from two different providers, or are, are they structurally different in how they work? I think I think they're
2: very similar, uh, definitely from the side effect point of view. Right? For so far, it looks very similar. From the mechanism of action, it's also similar. Some people advocate that um that the antibody-dependent cell to- cytotoxicity might be a little bit better. But the truth is to know for sure which one is better, there would have to be a study comparing... Isetuximab to map and I don't think anybody wants to do that study, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> so I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that uh, that that there's right now uh, there's going to be a phase three study. I don't know if it has already started that is comparing Isetuximab with pomalidomide and dexamethasone to pomalidomide and dexamethasone in the relapsed multiple myeloma. And I think that the more drugs we have, the better. Uh, could one C-38 antibody work in one patient and the other one not? Theoretically, if one doesn't work, the other one shouldn't work either because its the mechanism of action is similar. But really to know that we, there should be a clinical trial because you can test as many things as you want in cells and cell cultures and in tubes, but then it's, you don't really know until you try it in the patient. So I think it's going to be difficult to answer the question of which one is better or are they similar, how similar they are, because I'm not sure there's going to be a head-to-head comparison of the two drugs. But on the clinical trials, they both have a good activity. So isetuximab, a single agent, had a response rate of you know 20 to 40%, depending on the lines of treatment, which is pretty good for single agent yeah. for relapse. Right. Right, for isetuximab. And, and daratumumab has similar responses. And then with the addition of the of lenalidomide and pomalidomide, even more better responses. So, so I think that it looks at least it looks as at least as good as uh, daratumumab, and yeah. I think so it's better for you patients to, to have both available. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, really, they have some options. And this one is by Sanofi, right? And um Sheraton Yeah, Mabin, Sanofi, Janssen, Sanofi,
2: right. daratumumab is Johnson, yeah.
0: Mhm, so can you f- explain in your study you have three arms of dosing. you're gonna try three different ways, but this is a phase two study. Do you wanna describe the study in general, how it works, and then how people can join or um you know just basically how it works
2: so these study actually uh, everybody gets the same uh gets the same the same dose, okay, so everybody oh, okay. gets the same yeah. So it's one only one arm. It's 61 patients, and what we're targeting here is a response rate. And we would really like to, we would really like about 70% of the patients to have at least a partial response. And that's a, the target that we put also after talking to the Food and Drug Administration. That's the target that we put to consider this a, a a good treatment. So so if there's only one arm, everybody gets the ibrutinib uh, every week for the first couple of months. So the first two months is every week. So that's why, you know, if you don't live in Houston or you're not close around Houston for this study or New York, it's difficult because you would have to travel back and forth once a week for two months. Then it goes from starting with the third cycle, so month three, month three, four, five, and six for four months. Then it's every two weeks. So it's an infusion of four or five hours every two weeks and then starting Mm -hmm. with month cycle number seven so after the first six months because every cycle is 28 days then starting with the cycle seven and it can go up to cycle 30 so it can go for another two years of treatment you get it once a month and then whether you get it for two and a half years or you only get it for half a year depends on your response if you have a very good response you can keep getting it. If you don't have a very good response, you can elect to go off of the study. And this mm-hmm. study is very early on, so we have a couple of patients that started. One hasn't finished cycle one. The other one has finished a couple of cycles, and she already has a minor response. So that's very interesting. And another thing is we've, you know, we actually also completed an, a smoldering study with another antibody called pembrolizumab, which is another mechanism of action. And we saw a patient who had a complete remission. So definitely wow. antibodies. Yeah, so they can work, but it's so early on. So we really are trying to put pieces together, but we're also at the level of designing new studies. But for isetuximab it seems very promising, usually very well tolerated. Uh, you know, you don't lose your hair. Uh, most side effects are very low-grade so people, you know, they do have some side effects, but um, it's not much. I mean, it depends on the patient, but, you know, some patients had a little bit of dry eyes, um, you know, one patient had an infusion reaction, but it probably was needed an extra premedication, and once that extra premedication was given, that didn't happen again. So I think that they're usually very well tolerated, and the study goes on for about two and a half years, but again, it depends on how well you respond.
0: Mhm. And um you're thinking that this is appropriate in high risk smoldering myeloma because it's an antibody number 1 and you said your goal is to try to provide immunotherapies for patients so they're not as toxic. Perfect. And are there other reasons that you that you chose isotuximab in high risk smoldering myeloma?
2: Well, so the first thing is uh, I I even wanted to do it in intermediate risk because intermediate risk is even 50% at five years, which I think is a lot. If you have of mm-hmm. 50% right. of myeloma in five years, to me that sounds like a lot because you know myoma can be very devastating. So, mm-hmm. so I wanted even to do it a little bit earlier, but we had to. We had discussed it with the FDA, and the FDA uh, wanted this to be done in high risk. So that's one of the reasons it was only high risk. We, I would have been okay doing it. Also, people who have a risk of 50%, I I still think that 50% is a lot. Uh, So the main reason to choose high risk is because those are patients where you can make a bigger difference, right? Because let's say you have a patient who is low risk and they have, you know, 25% at five years. So you are treating 75% of patients that are not going to progress in five years. But if you take the 75% who seem they're going to progress, you know that, 75% of the patients you're treating, they would progress or they have higher chances of progressing. So uh, the benefit seems to be greater here because they would progress regardless. And you're trying to do an intervention. And also you can see results sooner because if you treat, you know, if you take uh, 50 patients with MGUS that have very low risk of progression to myeloma and then you treat them, you know uh, how do you know you're gonna see? It? You know you could wait 30 years to see a
3: difference, right? Because
2: right? they may <laughs> yeah, not <that's> progress. <laughs> but if you that, you take people who are high risk, who have a very, uh, you know, a 75% chance based on the current criteria um, to have myeloma in five years. Then at five years, you can analyze this patient and say only if you say only 20% progress. I mean that's a big difference. So that's an easy way to show it after five years. So you don't have to wait forever, thirty years. So that's an easy way to show that a medication uh, is working or that is potentially uh, very important for you know for a disease state. So that's one of the reasons to choose these.
0: Right. No, I think it's great, and I th- I'm excited that you're doing this study. Well, I know I've um, I I've taken a lot of time. <laughs> I want to leave it open to caller questions as well. So um, let me do this. We'll, we'll open it up for caller questions. And if you have a question for Dr. Monesonk, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. And then um, if we have extra time, I'll ask some follow-up questions. But I want to make sure that, that we do this before we have to go. Okay. Our first caller, 983-6757. Go ahead with your question.
4: Hi, Jenny. It's Dana Holmes. Hi, Dr. Monasang It's so ch- such a pleasure to talk to you in person, so to speak, because I know we follow each other on Twitter. Thanks yeah, so much for so- doing this, <laughs> this, this, this um, interview. It's just been fascinating to listen to. Um, is, is this similar or a continuation of the work that you did um, while at the NIH, the observational study that Dr. Langreen had? Yeah, so definitely. So first of all, I want to say, of course, thank you very much
2: to to you for, you know, for uh, following on Twitter, for being an active member and patient advocate in the myeloma community. We always need a lot of people like that. And then I also thank a lot, Dr. Langren. I have to say that the person who taught myeloma to me was Ola Langren. So, Uh uh, you know, very cherished in my heart. And a great investigator, great myeloma doctor. So if you know if he listens to this at some point, uh, hello, <laughs> and hope everything <laughs> is going well right now. But yes, yeah, so this study in a way is similar to the study that Dr. Langgren was, was doing at the Agent because I was involved in that. I was able to then when I started here do something similar. And however, there are some differences. Some of the differences, the technologies changed so much. So some of the studies that Dr. Langer was planning to do on his studies uh, are different from the ones that we're planning to do because also, uh, for example, we have a lot of immunology expertise here, so we are taking advantage of that to do a lot of uh, uh, immunology studies. And we also have a lot of uh, expertise with uh, genomics. We have a, genome, a very important genomic score. We have so a lot of things. So... Um, so some of the things are different and the study also has less patients. I think his study had more patients. Um and so it's similar but it's a little bit different uh, mostly on the correlative studies, what we're gonna test, what we're looking for and so on. But yes, I uh, Doctor Langren uh did you know a very good thing doing the study that he has and I believe he has all the samples.
4: Mm-hmm. So I
2: think that he is uh has collaborations with uh with other institutions and doctors and companies to look into those samples. So uh, so I'm looking forward to see, you know, if something comes out of that. But, you know, I'm staying here for the foreseeable future, so hopefully we'll have a lot of data and a lot of follow-up. Right. Um, so that's the most important. Uh, if you, you know, uh, if you leave, sometimes you cannot take the samples with you, things like that.
4: So, mm-hmm. now, now, doctor, um, question regarding, I realize that you stated that, only um, MD Anderson patients would be eligible, and that makes perfect sense to me because of the fact that you have to provide the samples. Um, But is there any um, thought on your end to extend it beyond MD Anderson and find a way for patients to be able to submit blood samples to you or bone marrow biopsy samples? And the reason why I'm asking is that um, Dr. Gobriel at Dana-Farber has her p study in which we do that. It's an observational study, and um, I'm, I'm part of it, and I live in New York. And at my regularly scheduled um, lab draws every quarter, I have three little extra vials that I fill up, and I send it to them by FedEx. They send me an envelope, I send it back to them, and they're able to actually use my serum for their study. And I've done the same with bone marrow biopsies whenever I had one regularly scheduled. Is there any way that um, MD Anderson might expand in order to get your study um, accrual going? So first of all, let me say that I'm fascinated by Dr.
2: Gabriel. She's amazing. When you go online and you see all the things for the peak out, I mean, it's absolutely the moment of revelation, so we uh we actually are doing quite well on, on study accrual for this for this study and uh and then yes, I would love to to do that if we had the resources. Right now, uh right this minute or in the mm-hmm. next forty months I don't think it's going to be possible just because of all the organization that would that this would require. I'm not saying you know we may not do it in a couple of years but one of the things that we also do here one first is we have many patients at
4: MD Anderson right yes so it's, it's a see, very large institution so i'm sure yes. you do not have so a problem with
2: yeah so we have a uh uh we have a let's see how many myeloma doctors we have so we have probably 6 or 7 myeloma doctors and we have clinics where we see you know patients a day, and so each of us is, you know, 50, 60, 70 patients every week. So that's uh, hundreds of patients every week that we see. So then we have something called the myeloma tissue bank study, and uh, and in that study, any patient with anything, even if you have MGUS or smoldering or a myeloma, or even if you have amyloid, patients with Waldenstrom, once you come in, you can sign a consent where every time you have a bone marrow. Or you have a, a blood done because your doctor thinks that it is necessary to do that, then we take a little bit of sample, so we have quite an extensive oh okay, sample. great, yeah, we have quite an extensive tissue bag, but i don't I'm not saying no, I think right now uh we have quite a lot of samples. I think it would be a great idea, and I would love to do that but I would have to see how I can do that. Mm-hmm. So, no, I understand that it's,
4: it's an undertaking. It certainly is. It's an um, undertaking. That's why mm-hmm. I say she's my hero. because I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. She's amazing. Yeah. And, so. um, you know, she actually, I have a smoldering myeloma um, Facebook group. And um, she was, okay. she was, um uh very, very supportive, and she joined it, and we did, like, in-group discussions about, you know, her work and whatnot, and we generated a lot of excitement over her study, and we were able to get a lot of patience for her that way, so... You know, when you're ready, come and join us, too. And, and if you I'm ready. Me. I'm ready to join. I'm ready to go Good. Uh, Jenny out. will send you the, the information, and she'll send you the, uh, the link, because we would love to have you. We have yeah. a couple of your other colleagues as well, and, and it's just really been a great resource. Um, yeah. Can I ask you, though, about the, the trial that you're doing now? Jenny, am I taking up too much time? Do you have other callers?
0: Yes, we have one other caller.
4: Okay, I'll just ask this quick question regarding the the um uh Isatuximab trial. Um why is it only one arm? I'm curious because I know the Dara trial had the three arms with 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 different dosing. One was one arm was just, you know, 8 weeks and then another arm was something else and then the the third arm is similar to what your trial is going to be. It's, you know, the whole gamut. And it, it, Have you looked at the DARA results to determine that that's probably the best type of approach to take or the best arm to use going forward with your trial, since this is also an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody?
2: So, first of all, great questions. Uh, And also, let me tell you that we would love to have uh, some of your colleagues that have smoldering myeloma to come join us for the isetuximab Study. So that 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 being said, and I'll be happy to join your group and do a session to explain more things about the study and give more details if they want to come and do screening tests with us. Um, now that being said, with daratumumab, I do not know the data for the daratumumab study. I think the reason they did three doses is because they didn't know what dose was going to be better uh-huh. uh, for Tenzan, the company. But Sanofi, they did. Uh, they waited a long time to have a dose that they thought would be the best dose, and it's based on a dose from relapsed myeloma. Ah. Yeah, but they spend a lot of time doing the phase one studies and phase one and phase two studies to see, uh, depending on the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, what would be the best dose. So then they decided that this is a dose where the receptors, the CD38 receptors are saturated, and they decided on just one dose. That's why this study is just one arm because that's the dose they decided, that's the dose they want to
4: explore. So they already have that dose. And okay, I'm, that, that I'm makes thinking, sense. Yeah, that's the reason why. And if, if a patient, let's say, were to progress or show signs of progression on it once they switched to the monthly um, part of the protocol... Are are you able to dial back and get them back on? Let's say every other week, or is it a really rigid study and that's it? They're on monthly and and they have to either continue with the study or drop out of it. The way the study is written right now is that if you are on the Wednesday monthly
2: and you progress, you have to come up study. However, mm-hmm. because this is an investigation uh, initiated study, and you know we control the study. We actually hold the INDM, the Anderson holds the investigational new drug application for this um for this study so we have some leeway if we see or we think that it might be better for patients to be able to receive the drug again uh, you know every week then we may amend the study
3: ah, okay to the
2: FDA about this amendment. So you have that wiggle room
3: mm-hmm. we
2: have wiggle room we can change the study because uh, i wrote the study right so we can you know i can change it if i think something is going to be more beneficial for the patient. Mm-hmm. I can't change it. I have to discuss it with the FDA. and the FDA right. has to, There has to be a rationale, and I have to explain why. But the FDA usually,
4: if you have a good rationale, they usually say yes.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Well, that's exciting mm-hmm. to know. Now, Dr. Or, Jenny interviewed Dr. Orlowski um, a couple of months ago, and we were talking about daratumumab and how it tends to begin to lose its effectiveness. And he mentioned that it could be due to two reasons, loss of CD38 expression and maybe even a T-cell exhaustion kind of scenario. Would you also theoretically think that you could see this in smoldering patients too? It's possible, yes.
2: I mean, it could happen
4: that you could have the C38 uh,
2: downregulation, and it could happen that these T-cells or NK cells are then attack the cell, you know, would, be, would not be as effective as later on. But we don't know that, right? We right. Know all mm-hmm.
3: Right, that's all that's theories, why we though. Yeah, mm-hmm. so
2: it could happen, but that's why we're doing the studies. Okay. And then, okay. you know, also it's possible, like, you know, you have to saturate the, the, the receptors, the C38 receptors, and you have to have very bright C38. That's how these antibodies work the best. So, yes, those are the mechanisms of resistance. To these antibodies so mm-hmm. unfortunately you know at the later stage they're not usually curing people right but let's see what happens in the early stage I mean right we'll have to look at the data but yeah those are uh, potential uh, complications that could happen
4: with the treatment yes so you're doing it in Houston and you're also doing it then in two locations in New York it's Sloan yeah, Kettering I... under Dr. Langreen and then yeah. in Mount Sinai under Dr. Um, Jagannath and Chari yes yeah okay yeah that's but great it's no, news. they're
2: they're not open yet we're they're not uh, no because our protocol uh we've been doing amendments, and the, our i r b um is right, just reviewed it, so now we're going to send the protocol to New York, and then the new york i r b has to approve it, but so okay. once the new york i r b approves it, then they can start, so it might still be maybe between
4: one and three months. I'm thinking great well, Lots thank you thank you so much. I appreciate. All the time that you afforded me, I appreciate it. And Jenny, if you can give um, Dr. Manager the the, the um, link to our yeah, sure. Facebook group, we'll we'll work on talking yeah. about her study.
0: Great. Okay, thanks, Dana. Okay, we have another caller eight one five one five eight six. Go ahead with your question.
3: Hi. Yes. Um, this is Joan Domingo, and I don't know if you remember me. Um, From NIH, I was in this uh, high-risk smoldering CRD protocol back in 2012-2013.
0: Yes, of course.
3: Okay, and I I was so excited when I saw this. Actually, another patient um, sent me this that uh, you were going to be doing this. And um, I just want to let you know that I'm – well, actually, I have a six-month follow-up at NIH – Tomorrow so we'll see how that uh, how that goes. Cool, cool. But, who are um, you seeing?
2: Are you seeing Diko Cavanjian or who are you seeing? Yes, there?
3: I'm seeing yeah, that's who I'm seeing Dr. Cavanjian K- uh, and um I'm actually for my uh my uh if I needed anything uh by Dr. Quock over at uh, Walter Reed is my uh doctor. Uh if you remember Mary Quock. Yeah, and, oh my
2: god. Can you say hello to them? Of course. They're they're both dear friends.
3: I will, and so what I do is, is, um, is uh, one quarter I see Dr. Kwok, so I saw her in January, and this time I'm seeing Dr. Uh, Kajanjan, and then I'll see Dr. Kwok again in July, <laughs> and then in November or end of October I'll go back to NIH, and they'll do a, um, uh, another bone marrow biopsy and a PET, uh, PET CT scan. And so also um, that's kind of the what I'm I've been doing uh, since I've, I finished up with uh, the two-year maintenance um, with the um, Rev- uh, with the Revlimid, but so far things have been going pretty good. So um, I just you know very happy that I did the trial and, and you really were my doctor at the beginning of um, at the beginning of all this for me during that uh, during most of my treatment time. And also um, I was just thrilled to see this and everything that you're doing down at uh, MD Anderson uh, sounds really exciting. Do you see a time where you think that um, uh, the treatment for high-risk smoldering will, be, uh, will not be strictly under uh, trial circumstances where it will com- be considered to be a treatment that will be able to be done um, outside the trial um, area? Uh yes, I think that, that this is what it, that's where we're going. That's why there are so
2: many studies and and again, you know, the NIH study was a small study, had excellent results as as you know for yourself, right? You did so well. Um so but yeah, so there are two issues that I think need to be solved a little bit before this can be uh given for example in in the community, right? Because uh, most most patients who have smoldering myeloma and myeloma they're not treated in you know, at NIH or at Sloan Kettering or here, they're in the community. And so we have to be very mindful of what we recommend because the tools that we have here, they're not available in the community. And so uh, the doctors in the community sometimes cannot take make decisions on, you know, what's high risk, what's not high risk because they don't have the tools. So our job is to make some criteria that you can reproduce, you know, across Uh, different, you know, in the community, in the academic centers that a doctor in the community can use that is easy and reproducible, that is, you know, something similar to a yes or no answer if possible. And then if we have something where we can identify the patients that are going to progress very well and we can give that test and say, okay, you have very high risk, so then this will be the treatment. And then we have to have a large study comparing one treatment that we think might be the best treatment to something else. And I think those things have to happen. And they're not. we're not there yet. So the danger with saying now treat smoldering is that it's possible that patients that are very low risk are going to be treated because the tools to assess who is at high risk, uh, sometimes they're vague, there are different types, and, you know, sometimes by one criteria it's high and another one is low. So we really need to have a very big consensus on what's high risk and it's not there yet i mean i know that that for example the i m w g is working on it, but we're not there yet that's but it's 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 you know it's the next step, so it's gonna happen,
3: and it's gonna happen in my lifetime but well, i would hope so uh i mean i think it's it's wonderful and i i I've never had a moment's regret for having done the you know having done the trial and um you know was was really happy that I happened to be um in dr landgren's um uh, uh i forget the name of the natural natural history uh trial that he was doing, which is how I got connected up at um n i h but um i will uh you know i hope you know to see that done and it's really exciting to see the things that you're you're doing there um so I I I'm I'm pleased I was so thankful that you know I got to see you a lot and you helped take care of me when I was at NIH um for my treatment and all but um I just wanted to you know wish you well and I will let uh, Dr. Kwok and Dr. Kanjian, I'll say uh and uh mm-hmm. tell them hello for you. Uh, like I said I'll see Mary in uh July and I'll see him tomorrow. So um but thank you very much and you know good luck with everything that you're you're doing it's it's really exciting and uh it's wonderful to see all the different uh treatments that are out there for everyone.
0: Yeah, thank you thank so you. much it's very thank nice you. to hear from you. Thanks for your comment. Okay, we have one more caller at 686-7176. Go ahead with your, with your question. This will be our last question.
1: Um hello doctor. I was wondering um if if somebody had the resources to come to MD Anderson and be part of the trial, would you encourage them to do that if they were currently at a facility that didn't do those trials?
2: Yeah, I mean, if they have smoldering myeloma, yeah, they can come. We can do an evaluation. Of course, they have to have high-risk smoldering myeloma, so not, not everybody is eligible. But if, if you have high-risk smoldering myeloma, I mean, unless, you you know, you you cannot have, um, uncontrolled diseases, or you, can, you cannot have had another cancer within three years. But I mean, except for those things, most faith people should be eligible. So, sure, I would encourage them to come. Uh, they can, you know, contact me. I mean, uh, I can, I don't know if there's a way to, to give my email, but definitely, I mean, we can see them in the clinic. Well, sure, sure. yeah, and I,
1: anybody... I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: No, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I think she's talking oh, about the yeah. isotuximab trial also. So I think even if you're not high-risk, you can still join the observational trial, right? Yeah,
1: that's why I was wondering, I'm... Uh, I've been talking over the past few months. I was diagnosed in January with smoldering myeloma, and Dr. Gobrio and her team have looked at all my results that I've had done, and they consider me high risk, but the facility that I'm at right now consider me low risk, so it's kind of hard to discern (laughs) the criteria. Yeah, that's
2: what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I, I do I can't get up to Boston logistically, but we are close enough to Houston and have family there so I I've considered maybe coming down there in the next month or two and I didn't know if that would be a good idea, so it's good to know.
2: Yeah, I mean if you want to give me, you know, later, I don't know if you if there's another way we can communicate that you can give me your um your information and we can set up an appointment, that's totally fine.
1: Oh sure. yeah, that would be great. And you can I don't know if it, Jenny can do that can, off there. Yeah. Yeah,
0: you can email me. So email me at info at crowdcare.org, mm-hmm. and then I'll pass your email along to her.
1: Perfect. Yeah, I've emailed you before, Jenny, so I'll do that this afternoon for sure. Okay, great. All okay, right, well, perfect. I appreciate yeah. both of you having this today. It was a wealth of information, and I've really encouraged me in a lot of areas, so thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you so much for calling in. Well, Dr. Monosonk, we are way over time, but I'm so thankful that you held on the line for us and answered all these important questions. We are just really happy with what you're doing at MD Anderson, and just wish you all the best. And I think um, some of these callers are just examples of um, the benefits of participating in clinical trials. I think um, people that are looking to participate in clinical trials are more aware of the kind of disease that they have. They're better at tracking the disease. They're better advocates for themselves. And they, as you can hear, they ask a lot of important questions that are going to get them better outcomes. So. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you
2: so much. This is my pleasure. And thank you for all you're doing for all the myeloma patients.
0: Oh, thanks. And um, we're just thank you for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio. So tune in next time to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you.